have you ever had one of those moments where you feel like everybody else knows something that you don't know? Maybe there's a crowd of people and they're all talking and they're whispering, they're laughing about something and you're in the conversation, but you don't know what it is they're talking about or laughing about. It's just kind of over your head. Maybe, maybe you're playing a game with somebody and you make a move and then you hear, <laughs> and you want to take the move back because you don't know what it is that they know, that you don't know, you don't know what you've missed, that they're going to kind of capitalize on this opportunity and you, you just don't know what to do. Maybe you're in school, right, and you're, you're taking a test, there's this big test that happens, and you're together afterwards, you're kind of talking about the questions on the test and you talk about that one question, they say, well, what did you put? Oh, this is my answer. Oh, and they kind of smile and shake their head. And you're thinking, well, what, what do you know that I don't know? We've all kind of been there, right? Where we feel like, man, people know something that I just don't quite know. I wonder if when Paul started writing Ephesians chapter 3, if he just kind of smiled and laughed a little bit. And if the Roman guard sitting next to him, if he just kind of shot up and was like, okay, Paul, what is it that you know that I don't know? Because in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul reveals to the church some inside information, some special knowledge of this mystery, a mystery that's not meant to be kept quiet. It really gets to the heart of what the church is all about, the mission of the church. The mission for us at Central is quite simple, to share Jesus and to impact people. And there are a few passages in Scripture that kind of put these concepts together quite the way that Paul does in Ephesians chapter 3. The whys behind it, the hows, everything, it, it, he all kind of knits it together here in Ephesians 3. When Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, he wanted to make sure that they knew that they understood the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in knowing the unsearchable riches of Christ, how these believers, and now us by extension of the Holy Spirit stitching this letter into the Holy Scriptures, how wealthy we really are in Christ and what our responsibility is to do as we steward this wealth. Paul preached and he prayed that we would use our spiritual wealth, this inside information, this knowledge of the mystery of the kingdom, for kingdom work. And he prays and he writes that we would all be strengthened within, that we would be established in love, that we would be powerful in prayer, and that we would be filled with God himself as we take this message to the people. And so therefore, as we begin looking at Ephesians 3 this morning, verses 1 through 13, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, you need to understand that Ephesians 3 is perhaps the key to the whole letter of Ephesians. It's, this is the critical point of the letter. As Paul begins his thought in verse 1, you can kind of see it in your Bibles, about halfway through verse 1, in most of your translations, there's going to be this dash. Because at this point, Paul is divinely interrupted. Not rudely, but divinely interrupted with this parenthetical thought. And this inside information, this special knowledge, this knowledge of the mystery of the kingdom that he must convey to the church, and he's not going to finish this parenthetical thought until the end of verse 12. It can be easy to miss in the English, you know, you just read right through it. But the verse, the main sentence of this text is verse 1, and then skip all the way down to verse 13. And so to make sure that we understand the main sentence, and then also the whole text, I'm going to read to you the main sentence, and then I'll read the whole text 
this morning. As we look at this passage this morning, it's a little more technical of a, of a message as we understand the theology because right thinking always produces right living. So try to hang in there this morning if, uh, if it seems a little blurry, okay? But let's read Ephesians 1. 1 to 13, but I'll give you the main sentence first. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, skip all the way down, ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. That's the main sentence, now the whole passage. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power to me. The very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. We know chapter 3 is important because of the way Paul starts. He starts with this phrase, for this reason. It's for this reason that he's writing. And so we ask the question, well, what reason? All that Paul's already said in chapter 1 and 2, out of the culmination of what he's said, out of the history of what he's already communicated in chapters two, chapters 1 and 2, out of the great work of the Trinity in chapter 1, where the Father who planned and the Son who provided and the Spirit who sealed the promise of the work and all we inherit in Christ and how how in one day Jesus is going to use the church to fill everything in every way. The fullness of Jesus will be seen in all of culture, and all of society, and he uses the church to do that. Thus the shift from more effort to more Jesus. Out of all of that in chapter 1, and then out of all he will write about in chapter 2, how God took Jew and Gentile, those from opposite, contrary, antagonistic backgrounds, so that Christ, who made peace with all peoples before God, also becomes our peace in such a way as to bring two irreconcilable groups and make them one man, a family, all peoples now with access, equal access and standing before God the Father through the grace of the Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, we are made not merely volunteers, but masterpieces." It is for this reason, for that reason, for all that he's communicated, that Paul now wants to talk about the mission, the message, the magnificence of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, and so that our motivation would not be out of guilt, but out of love. Thus the shift from more guilt to more love. 
it's almost as if this moment, Paul just kind of hears a chink in his chain. And he remembers who he is and why he's there. And so he assures the church that he is not a prisoner of the Jews, and he is not a prisoner of the Romans, but he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It is not Caesar who defined his circumstances. It's Jesus Christ who defined his circumstances. See, Paul has this clarity of mission, this clarity of who he is, that he was bound to Christ and he was bound for Christ to be this apostle as a Jewish convert, this, this man who was a previous antagonist, he was the one who threatened the ministry and he threatened the spreading of the gospel, that God called this man to be sent with this mission and a message of the magnificence of Jesus to, of all people, the rest of the world, the nations, the Gentiles, and it is born out of love. It is interesting, you know, so, so many times we can get so caught up into our circumstances and we think our circumstances define life. Paul here, he's in chains, he's bound, he's imprisoned, and he says, don't think the Romans did this to me. Don't think the Jews did this to me. Jesus did this to me. I am bound for a reason. I am a prisoner of Christ. Why is it that Paul is willing to suffer a lifetime of persecution and imprisonment once he's saved? Why would anybody want to impact messy people, difficult people, sinful people? Why would everyday missionaries take risks to start neighborhood Bible studies and neighborhood men's groups and neighborhood women's groups with unsaved people? Why should we give up our time to come here to a place like this and to be equipped for such a radical life. You know, so many churches say, hey, come to church, and uh, this is a safe place, and we can study the Bible here together. Well, why would people pray and encourage a radical ministry where we actually take the gospel to our neighborhoods and to our workplaces and to places where we live, work, study, and play? Well, why would people do this? Why would people give to this? Well, in this passage, Paul answers all of those questions in this parenthetical thought. Because we're made for more, is the ultimate argument. Paul says that we were made to reveal the mystery of God's will. That we revealed the mystery of God's will. There's a timing and truth to this mystery. Paul calls this a stewardship. The Greek word is oikonomia. In the English word, we get the word economy from this term. The King James translates it dispensation. Paul says that the stewardship of God's grace was given to him for the Gentiles. This responsibility, this part of God's administration, the government of God's will at this particular time was given to Paul by revelation so that he could make it known to the world, to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. This is the mystery that Paul wrote about. He talked about it in chapter 2, how the uncircumcised, how the separated, how the excluded, how the strangers, those who are without hope and without God, how these Gentiles have been brought near and now made into one body, the church. Paul also talked about a future time in heaven and on earth when everything will be subdued under, under the reign of our Lord and his Christ and he talks about that in chapter 1. Also in the book of Revelation, it looks forward to a time when the mystery aspects of the kingdom at this time will be finished. 
and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forevermore. There is a future aspect, a future time that has not yet been realized. At the same time, there is a past when the Gentiles were cut off, when they were strangers, when they were aliens, when they were without hope and without God. See, the period that we are living in now is a unique period in timing. It's a mystery of the kingdom that the peoples in ages past did not see, did not understand, could not quite get. Did you catch what he said about this mystery? He said, I already wrote to you about it in brief. That's back in chapter 1, about this mystery, so that we can put it all together so that we can understand that this mystery that was concealed in the past is now understood through spiritual enlightenment. This time, in the dispensation, in the government, in the economy of God, it is unique. It is new in its makeup and in its spiritual privilege. This is something that was not true in previous generations. This is a unique period in time. And so what God is doing in the church It was never done before the period of the church, you understand. This is unique in time, what God is doing now. And if you're a Gentile like me, which I assume most of you are, we better be thankful. Because before Christ, you realize we were cut off. We were strangers. We were not God's chosen people. We were without hope and without God. But now in this mysterious time, this strange, unique time, this surprising time that nobody saw coming... God makes one. He takes two irreconcilable groups and he makes one body, one family, the church. And that time is now. What a great time to be alive. There is no, if you were a Gentile, there is no better time to be alive than right now, you understand. Some people complain, oh, if we can only go back to the good old days, you realize these are the good old days, okay? It doesn't get better than it is right now if you're a Gentile. This is it, except in the future, it will get better. All right, But if you look over the course of history, there is a truth to this mystery. In verse 6, you look at the terms. It says the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. This mystery was called a stewardship in verse 2. It's called an administration down in verse 5. It's the same word, oikonomia. It's identified as the church in verse 10. In Colossians 1, Paul talked about it. It is Christ in me, the hope of glory. And there is this privilege, it being in Christ, that we experience now. And here the emphasis is on the makeup of that body. And how this is mysterious, the makeup of the body, that it is Jew and Gentile who by faith have come into a relationship with God, experiencing the grace of God so that the body of God can be seen in the family of God, worshiping God together in unity. These words that Paul was led by the Spirit to write, which are some of the most beautiful words were never used anywhere else in the scriptures, okay? These three terms, fellow, fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers, they're, they're never used anywhere else in the scriptures. They are unique. They're not even used in other literature in Paul's day. The first term, fellow heirs, it speaks of the security that God has destined for all of us, that we are fellow members also of the body, Notice, it doesn't say that Gentiles are fellow members of Israel. Okay, the church does not replace Israel. He's saying that both 
are now fellow members of this one new body, this one new man. This is a relationship of respect and love. And the last unique term here is fellow partakers of the promise. And this comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that promise that in the letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote about, and he would track it all the way back to before the law, to before Moses. This is pre-law, pre-Moses, all the way back to Abraham. When Abraham was promised that through one seed, through his one seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The law was given some 400 years after that, and it was given because of sin, because of transgression. But the mystery is that the Jew and Gentile can now come together into this one new formation, this one new body, the church. And Paul, in trying to explain this great mystery, he just kind of makes up three terms here. It's like, I don't even know how to explain the greatness of this. Uh, Let me just kind of put some stuff together and see if this helps. And so he just makes up three words to get these ideas across. This is a new structure, a new foundation. This is phenomenal in every way. And if the gospel is the means into entry into Christ, then the gospel is also the means into entering into this new identity of being one body, one family with believers of all backgrounds. The mystery of God's will is this new dispensation, this new economy, this new administration. It is the dispensation, the age, the mystery of the church. And don't miss the responsibility of the church. It is to proclaim God's word in this passage. To proclaim God's word. And you thought maybe that was just my job. No, it is the job of the church. That's you and me. That's why we don't just come together and study. No, we go out there and we start study groups. We we just start sharing. We're proclaiming and, and explaining. Because this is the power that we've been given. Have you ever been given a letter or something that's really special to you? Maybe somebody wrote you a note and you said, oh, this is so special. This is so important. This is... I've got a, a briefcase full of uh, notes and cards and everything. Back when I was a youth pastor and would take missions trips and students and other leaders, they would write, they would write encouraging notes and letters. And so if ever I have a rough day or something, if, if ever I'm wondering, okay, what, what? Are we making any impact here? What's going on? I can kind of pull those out and just be reminded, okay, this is good. we got a drawer at home full of letters from our old church, full of letters from you that just are a reminder, okay, the good things that God is doing of the encouragement and the impact in case life is ever, ever hard. But we all had this priceless collection of letters, 21 to be exact, 21 of the 27 New Testament books are letters, written to instruct and encourage Christians, and they contain this priceless revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul received this message from God, and he was told to preach it to the world. And so the letters that you and I, we hold in our hands even this morning, they contain God's special revelation to us that we are now to proclaim to the world. To, to the Christian, the value of these letters, these New Testament letters, it's not their cash value. It is their wisdom delivered by God himself. Verse 7 says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of all his power. And then Paul just reminds you of his life. And he says, To me, of all people, to me, the least of all saints, The grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, 
the unfathomable, untrackable, unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration, the oikonomia, what is the mystery for which ages have been hidden in, hidden in God and now create, who created all things. Proclaiming the mystery is a gift of God's grace. Don't ever forget that. We are privileged to be proclaimers. We are privileged to be proclaimers. It is a gift of grace. And the very fact that it is grace shows the powerful spiritual intervention that was necessary for God to save us and for God to gift us by his spirit so that we could be effective proclaimers. The term minister in this text, it carries with it this idea of being a table waiter always at the bidding of those who you are serving. And, and Paul says, hey, of all the table waiters out there, I'm the least. The older Paul became in Christ, the more he recognized the grace of God, that it's all grace. The fact that I can share, the fact that I can impact, it's grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. I look at fellow brothers and sisters in the faith who've served God faithfully for many years longer than I have, and they all say the same thing. It is a privilege, not a merit. It is a privilege. It is much more opportunity than it ever is obligation. That God would grant to us by his grace that we could proclaim. And therefore, we're motivated not by guilt, not by duty, not by obligation, but we are motivated first and foremost by love. I mean, you see the humility here that Paul is demonstrating. Humility is an essential prerequisite for effective service. If you do not come to the ministry humble, and we all have a ministry, by the way. It's not just the paid professionals. We all have the ministry. And if you do not come to that ministry humble, you're disqualified for service because humility is the essential prerequisite. Sharing Jesus and impacting people wherever we live, work, study, and play, it is a privilege. It is not a right. And it is by the grace of God that we're able to do it. There's two things that Paul mentions in this. One is the proclamation and the other is the explanation. That we not only proclaim the truth, but we also explain it in such a way that other people can understand it. The mystery of God's will it was a new dispensation, a new age, a new economy, and the message of God's word is a very powerful declaration. So we share Jesus and we impact people. We gather to be equipped to learn more and more of Jesus so that we can go out and tell the good news. We are equipped for the proclamation of his word. The riches, the unfathomable, untraceable, untrackable riches that Paul talks about of Christ, it is this that we proclaim and then there is also the explanation of it all to help people understand. We bring to light the unforeseen mystery of the church. That's part, that's part of what we bring to light here, this oikonomia, this dispensation of time we are privileged to be a part of. You and I, we get to expound to the world why God chose in Christ to use his church at this period in time in history to impact people. Why the church? That, that's, that's the mystery. And we get to explain it. Well, why is it that God would take people from all kinds of backgrounds, bring them together as one to share Jesus to the world? This is, it is a powerful declaration and a necessary explanation of what God is doing in a cosmic way through Christ in his church. This is the manifestation of God's wisdom from the church to the world. We demonstrate 
the manifestation of God's wisdom. That's what we do. I mean, you look at the result clause in verse 10. It can be sometimes difficult to see in the English, but verse 10 near, near the end is the, of this powerful parenthesis. There's a result clause. The, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, watch this, through the church to who? The rulers and authorities where? In heavenly places. Don't miss this. One of the purposes of proclaiming the word of God, of bringing to light the administration of God at this period, this unique time in history, is that rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, in the unseen world, would understand the wonderful, manifold wisdom of God. See, it goes far beyond what our minds would even contemplate, that he's using us as a testimony to leaders in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly, unforeseen world. And this was always what he planned to do. This was always part of God's eternal plan. And now we have this boldness, we have confident access through faith in him. He says, therefore I ask you not to lose heart of my tribulations on your behalf. Therefore your glory. We're made for something more than this, more than our circumstances. We're made to reveal the bigness, the supremacy of Christ to the world. Paul's writing this in prison. He says, you get it, I'm in prison. But the chink in the chain is for Christ. The circumstances, whatever circumstances are going on in your life, they are for Christ. Why do we risk going into broken areas of culture? Why do we risk having unwed moms who would be out on the streets into tiny three-bedroom townhomes when you already have five kids? Why, Why do we start neighborhood Bible studies with unreached people instead of just coming here to study more in our bubble? Because we're motivated by the love of Christ. It's for Christ. This is not about circumstances caused by Caesar that this life is about. This is about Jesus. Paul uses this word manifold. It's used several places in the the Bible. The manifold grace of God and the spiritual giftings in 1 Peter 4. It's the manifold, very different sizes and shapes of testing that comes to us. In this passage, it is the multi-layered, multi-folded, multi-colored tapestry of the wisdom of God. Outside of the scriptures, the term was used to describe multi-colored cloth, this word manifold, the phenomenal palette of God's wisdom. In geology, it was used to describe the unusual assortment of crystals. The church is a multi-layered, multi-faceted, multi-ethnic, multi-educated, multi-gifted family where each part is critical to the eternal plan that God has built up with the foundation being Jesus Christ that now we proclaim to the world. It's all built upon the plumb line of Jesus, and it's all for Jesus. And the testimony of the church is for the cosmos. The cosmos is is the stage for which the church is this masterpiece on display. In 1 Corinthians 11, God God talks about it. and And he goes through and he breaks down just the way that he's created everything. And he says that God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman. And all of that is done as a testimony to the angels. To the angels in 1 Corinthians 11. And now here it is a testimony to the unseen world, to unseen leaders, 
not only the seen world, but also the, seen, the unseen world. The question is, will the seen world and the unseen world think better of our God because of our testimony? Will they think better of our God because of the way we proclaim and we explain? See, it's not just what we do here at Central. It's not just what we do as the universal body of Christ. It is what we do in Christ, in our proclamation and in our explanation and in the life change and the lifestyle as a testimony to the world, both seen and unseen, that God is who they doubted him to be, that he is wise enough to plan even before creation and that all of this would be for his glory and his glory alone and the church declares that. The testimony of the church is to the cosmos the seen and unseen. And there's this access of the church that Paul talks about, that now we have boldness in place of fear, that now we have confidence in place of shame. We have this freedom of speech that we can come and talk to our God. We have this freedom from sin and therefore access into this very high place, the presence of God, and we get this through Christ, and it's our very privilege of ministry And the motivation of it all, it shifts from more guilt to more love because we realize it's just grace upon grace upon grace that we're privileged to be proclaimers and explainers. It gives us this holy sense of confidence that this is what God is about, that this is what God has made us for, that he's going to use your life and he's going to use my life. He's going to get us out from behind our walls so that we would go and make more disciples as he has called us to do. The heart of the church is encouraged. You see that Paul in his place in prison in his chains, it's not Caesar. His circumstances are not dictated by Caesar. He says, I don't want you to focus on the circumstances. There's something bigger going on here. Be encouraged. Be of joy. The church should always be one of joy. We can look around the world and we can say, oh, look at the sin here and look at this here and look, what, look what's happening and everything is falling apart. And the church is this place of joy where people of all different backgrounds gather together in faith and hope and love because we know the end of the story. We know how it ends, and and so we are encouraged. And we also realize that in this mysterious aspect of the kingdom, it is a privilege to be alive, that there is no better time to be alive, that God has created us, his church, at this time for this generation And that's why he said, don't worry about me in prison. This chain is only temporarily restricting my ability. And in the meantime, I was guided by the Spirit to write these letters of truth to motivate you, the church, for this present age, this age of mystery that we are still living in today. But God has always had a plan for the mystery. God has always had a will for this dispensation. The message of his word, it's a powerful proclamation and the manifestation of his wisdom is a glorious demonstration to the cosmos about the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of our God. What a unique and special time to be alive. Central, this is why we share Jesus and impact people. This is why we get out from our bubble here. We don't just put a welcome banner up here but we go there. It is who we were made to be. We don't just smile like we know something they don't know. We don't just giggle to ourselves, yeah, you don't understand that yet. No, we talk, we proclaim, we explain what we know 
Because if we don't, if we simply gather together and we never take it there, it is a misapplication of Scripture that one day we will all give account for. We are driven by love, and we are privileged to proclaim to the cosmos the majesty of God. And so it is for this reason that Paul prays. Let's pray together, and we'll join Paul in this prayer that he has prayed for the church centuries ago. God, for this reason, we kneel before you, our Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God, I pray out of your glorious riches that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in, in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And God, I pray that you, the church, would be rooted and established in love that we would have power together, all of us, with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to God, him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to you alone be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. This is our prayer. Amen.